A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Helen. Hello, I'm Stephen. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast. So let's talk about Labour Conference, which I don't know about you, but I am stoked about starting uh, on Saturday. Uh, Well, yeah, it does it start on Saturday. That's a kind of great question, isn't it? Like, who's the first prime minister, which gets history graduates really angry. Yeah, uh, I, I'm not going to I'm not going to get involved in who the first prime minister is. Um, because it was Robert Peel. Um, <laughs> no, no, I, I think... Yeah, you know, I think it's it, it, it's you know it, it's well worn. I, I think it has to be Walpole. He you know he he effectively introduced and codified stable parliamentary government. He was the architect of of a, a political system which endured to a greater or lesser extent at least until uh, Pitt the Younger. Uh, and I think yeah, you know, I can't see an argument that Pitt the Younger was not a prime minister. Now, I don't think you can start with Robert Peel. And I'm not being drawn into into this argument. Um, well, it's okay, because as soon as you said Pitt the Younger, I started thinking about Brad Pitt, so I um, I would happily... We could talk about Brangelina's divorce if you want, well, but instead, let's talk about another split that's capturing headlines. The Labour Party. Um, yeah, so... In your big confident prediction, Omita, do you think that Jeremy Corbyn will be elected with a bigger mandate, an enormous mandate, a bigger mandate than last time? Definitely. I mean, I think partly because... Because Owen Smith has has run such a woeful campaign, right? So the interesting thing to give readers a sneak peek of something I'm going to write after the result, if it is, as I expect, a, a bigger win for, for Corbyn uh, than he got last time, right? In some ways, it's actually quite alarming, right? Owen Smith had no prior profile when he started running. I am yet to meet anyone who honestly thinks Owen Smith has improved his standing over the course of this leadership race. Um... There are not a lot of pro-Owen Smith voters. There are only anti-Corbyn voters. Yes, and yet more people will have paid £25 and voted for Owen Smith than voted for Liz Kendall in total. More people will have voted for... So he, he for a fairly rubbish candidate, he's going to do fairly well, suggesting that if they had had a, you know, someone who, who actually could inspire some people, could maybe recruit people on their own bat as opposed to just being not Jeremy Corbyn, then you can see how Corbyn would have reason to be worried. Of course, it feels to me unlikely than the than his critics will produce a candidate who's capable of doing all of those things because the problem with unity candidates is the subtitle of unity candidate is not someone so good that they will be in power for a long time, right? Yeah, I keep thinking about the popes. 
And there was a whole period of popes, right, where no one could really agree and the College of Cardinals was incredibly split. So what they would do is pick the oldest, dodgiest looking pope they could and the sort of basically that would just be like, well, he'll only be around for like six months, which backfired spectacularly with Pope, I'm going to get this wrong, John the Twenty Third, who then introduced the Second Vatican Council, which took the mass out of Latin which is not something that Owen Smith is going to get the chance to do because he is not he you know he's not that sufficiently a weak enough a unity candidate I guess that people felt okay about voting for him I just don't think he ever made the case to Corbyn voters who were a bit wary of Corbyn maybe not amazingly that well that I think the, the Corbyn team did very well at saying this will be um, the counter-revolution right yeah. What they thought, let's, I mean, the rebels thought they were, they put up a soft left candidate to say, don't worry, this guy will be just like Corbyn, but, but better at, at organizing stuff and running stuff. And what people heard was the Corbyn experiment will be stone dead on, on day one. Yeah. And he also then, I mean, the problem is he also did then make competence's dividing line and promptly threatened Banter. to knock Theresa May on her heels, um, say, negotiate with, with ISIS. ISIS. I mean, it, 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 is, it is a really interesting example of one of the things that a lot of people always say is, oh, you know, he needs better staff, etc., etc. Actually, that campaign has been astonishingly well-staffed, right? It's got a lot of people who are fairly impressive behind the scenes. Their message, press releases, venues, you know, they've had events around the country. It's actually a Rolls-Royce operation. It's just it doesn't matter if you have a Rolls-Royce operation if your driver is a chimp. Um, um, the thing I've been struggling to work, a concise way of saying and uh, and I haven't got to yet so the podcast is the correct venue for this thought I guess my worry if I were a Corbyn supporter would be a bit like the same worry that I would have if I were a UKIP supporter which is that the party is in danger of becoming too much a one man band which was always a criticism of UKIP that it was the Nigel Farage show and they hadn't built any you know, uh, institutional memory around him. I mean, this wasn't helped by the fact that Nigel Farage sort of with almost Gordon Brown-like sniper accuracy picked off anybody who looked like they might threaten him, right? But that, that would be my worry is, is about the sort of succession planning and about the institutional takeover of all the bits and pieces that you need to have a post-Corbyn left-wing party, if that's if that's what you want. How secure that victory is or how much of it is invested personally in, in the human being of Corbyn himself. Well, the interesting thing about the Labour Party is no faction has ever survived a contested leadership election. You can have an interesting and fairly arid argument about the extent to which there was continuity and discontinuity between Blair and Brown, but the leadership election immediately after was won by someone promising a break from the new Labour approach, and effectively the party was run from Labour's soft left for five years. Then 2015, the soft left lost control, mm. and the Labour left took control. My instinct is that pattern will continue after uh, election defeat again, but if there's a snap election, then I think Corbyn will, will get to run, will, will get to stay on. So I think if there's a Labour, an election defeat in 2017, I think my impression uh, from talking to our listeners and to talking to party members more generally, is that people will um, decide... Well, I think he needs more time. I think that's the thing time. is that, you know, I think people feel, and, and Owen Smith himself was sort of nudging towards acknowledging this, that the, the coup kind of coming after the um, EU referendum and then the leadership, after only having a year 
I think if their premise was that Corbyn has failed, lots of people didn't feel that they had enough evidence they, and they felt that he hadn't been given a chance. And I think that was ultimately pretty toxic to them. And I think if there were an election within the next year, people would probably argue the same thing. Well, you know, this isn't really a Corbyn party yet, so how can we you know, pin this result on Corbyn? Which I personally is not a thesis that I sign up to, but it is one that is very attractive and I think a lot of people would subscribe to. I mean, I think I both sign up to it and don't sign up to it, right? On the one hand... Do I believe that if the Labour Party unified around Jeremy, they would win? No, of course not. I mean, look at the local elections. Look at everything we know about how how people um, how people vote, uh, his own personal approval ratings, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and also the fact that he will never get over the electoral halitosis of the anthem thing, which is one of those things which. Yeah, shouldn't the, matter, but yeah. people care about it a great deal. It would be like stabbed uh, your brother in the back, right? Yeah, and exactly. this is the thing. I think that something I, I'm kind of increasingly want to make clear to people is that for people, particularly people who've only recently got interested in Labour, this is not, you know, not all of this stuff is new, right? Mm. That um, Labour re- leaders getting really dragged in the press for things that they, you know, that for, for single instance getting built up. That is not a kind of, that is not a, a new thing. I mean, remember, do you remember Gordon Brown wrote a letter back to a soldier's mother and he was criticised for spelling the name wrong. And there was no taking into consideration the fact that he's only got the use of one eye, you know, he's, he's, you know, he's... And the fact that he he does this anyway, despite you know having to write a marker pen, was you know I think is quite a thoughtful thing to do. But no, that doesn't matter. Yeah, that doesn't matter. That's still a front page headline about disrespect to our troops, and that you know and the Emily Man and the bacon sandwich. You know the the press is not fair to people who are not in a position to give it favours. I well, I also the press is not fair to the left. And one of the things which was really interesting during the referendum campaign is talking to conservative cabinet ministers who were on the side of Remain. Several of them, I mean, one of them did explicitly say, gosh, it's quite hard being on the left, isn't it? Uh, but several of them did suddenly go, oh, wait a second. Mm. We, you don't get a fair hearing for this. This yeah. is much harder. And there was a certain kind of almost sort of schadenfreude among some senior Labour figures who were like, oh, right, so, you know, watch these guys having first time having to play politics on not the easy difficulty setting. Right? Um, but yeah, the difficulty is, of course, um, but yeah. So while I don't buy that if people had unified behind him, uh, he would have won, unquestionably he will do worse because people aren't unified behind him, right? Um, you know, just just because I think the building is on fire doesn't change the fact that turning all of the taps on on the bottom floor hasn't created another another problem. Okay, so what do you think is going to happen with about the, the shadow cabinet? And also, can you tell me what happened at the NEC election last night? Because it was magazine press day and uh, I was reading proofs rather than paying attention to the eight-and-a-half-hour NEC meeting. Um, so it was high noon at the uh, NEC meeting, right? Now, the interesting thing is is that this is like the lame-duck NEC. The new NEC will take uh, power after conference. The NEC is elected broadly in thirds. I'm going to simplify slightly here for, for, for ease of explanation, right? So... It's elected by affiliates, so trade unions, Fabian Society, all of that jazz, who elect various representatives onto uh, onto onto their bit by MPs, by the shadow cabinet, and so not third, so forth, and uh, by um and the um what's it face the members, right? Uh, yeah, I was really I was the Welsh. So a lot of people got slightly confused because people were reporting that Corbynites swept the board, right? They did, but. They're they, only a, a they, bit of the board. They, yeah, they, so it's, it's basically like the old electoral college. It's like if you won every vote in the state of California or whatever, you still only get however many electoral college votes. Yeah. Um, so they, they got six candidates 
elected uh, to the NEC. That's uh, the, that was the momentum slate, the essentially. Momentum slate, uh, but also, did I hear something about them having now representatives from the from the nation, national parties, the Welsh and the Scottish yeah. parties? So, Carl, Karen Jones, the leader of the Welsh party, and Keiza Dugdale, the leader of Scottish Labour, will both now have seats on the NEC. Uh, in addition... I think it's fair to describe both of them as not... Yeah, yeah, Corbyn sceptics, right? I think both of them have said publicly they, are, you know, they're not. Well, oh well, the interesting thing is Karen Jones has stayed completely silent about the leadership election, which is a fun bit of Welsh Labour criminology. Uh, well, I, I think, and I don't think either of them are, get, are overly keen to get involved in it. But I, do, I would, okay. Here's the way of putting it: neither of them are. Corbyn fans, right? They are not the type of MP who would have nominated him in the first place, right? They're not from that part of the party. Yeah, and also, I mean, the interesting thing is there is not a formal position of leader of, of the Welsh Labour Party. There's just a leader of the Welsh Parliamentary Group, as it were, in the in, in, in the Assembly. So um, so that could be Neil Hamilton as well. That could be Neil Hamilton as well. But um, but but so, in, in another way, in term, yeah, it makes it harder for them to get through rule train changes. And um, while the while pro Corbyn candidates did well among the membership, um, they did worse among the parliamentary party. So, um, oh God, what's his trousers? So um, <laughs> you'll put your so um, for listeners who were wondering that Stephen sounds a little vague. Um, you were glugging Lemsip mere moments for this, um, and as you admitted this morning, there is somebody who spreads conference flu to everybody, and yeah. the typhoid Mary is you this year, right? You good. are going to go to the New Statesman party on Sunday and breathe on MPs. Don't, yeah. yeah, maybe we'll get you one of those little shields. But the good thing is it means there's always someone at Conservative Party conference who, when every other journalist who's been there is like, I feel awful. He's like, I feel great. <laughs> because obviously they've passed it on to everyone else. So I am going to be the person in Birmingham. Uh, chipper. Chipper. Yeah. Happy. Can we um, just talk quickly about the subject of my column this week, which is English nationalism? So my, the premise that I've been exploring is this idea that those northern Labour heartlands, there are working class voters, primarily white voters, who um, describe themselves on a, an interesting scale called the Merino scale as um, more English than British. And that's in an 80% of voters who describe themselves that way voted leave in the EU referendum. And that's also the group with, with whom you kept as well. So it, this whole time you've been talking about Merino, I thought you were talking about the Jose, Jose Mourinho, Mourinho scale. Um, yeah. yeah. No, tragically not. It is a um, Spanish political scientist, and it was a, a question that was formed to gauge in support for Catalan independence, I think. But um, but what's kind of quite interesting about that is that those voters do not see... There is no English Labour Party, right? And I think, you know, you and I have talked about the interesting resilience and now challenges of Welsh Labour, and I think that there is a... There is a distinctively Welsh flavour of, of the Labour Party that does well. Obviously, Scott, Scottish Labour, another thing that came out of the NEC meeting last night is that Kezia Dugdale has got much more control over that party now, right? Over CLPs, over candidate selections. Yeah. So they're, they are trying to rebuild Scottish Labour as a distinct force in its own right. Well, that leaves then, what is, is there an English Labour Party and how does that appeal to people who see themselves primarily as English. So if you look at the, the Merino scale, people describe themselves from, uh, you know, I am English, not British. I'm more English than British. I'm equally, you know, and then, and Labour support goes up the more people see themselves as British. Uh, and I spoke to John Denham, a former Labour MP who now researches Englishness, and he said, you know, Scotland in the EU referendum campaign got Scotland stronger in Europe. England got Britain stronger in Europe. And that's uh, that was a problem because that was an elite campaign from people who think that Britain and England are the same thing. And actually, because England is such a dominant identity and it's such a it's such a dominant you know, demographically, 
there's always been resistance to an English parliament. But how do you reach those voters who feel themselves to be English and feel that Labour is not English? So I'm really sceptical about this English Labour thing, right? So Bridget Phillipson, who is an MP who I think is hugely... Um, I think underrated would be the wrong word. She went on maternity leave uh, during the Labour leadership, which I think is a time when a lot of people, like, say, Chion Rura, mm. was suddenly writing lots of interesting things and people kind of noticed her and t- took account of her as a kind of uh, a thinker, the same with, say, Johnny Reynolds or, or Alison McGovern. And I think Bridget Phillipson is another person who kind of could have come up in that space. Um, well, that's going to be one of the she... great things that you and I can write about in our memoirs, the great maternity leave change of, of Labour, right? How it's the sort of butterfly effect. Rachel Reeves's maternity leave, Lisa Nandy's maternity leave that meant that, you know, one of the reasons that she didn't stand for leader was that she had a, a very small child. Yeah. And still does. I mean the child is now marginally larger, but not huge. Yeah, no, it's it's you know, it's it's, it's not young enough it's not old enough to, you know, stand for Parliament or whatever. Um but Bridget Phillipson wrote a brilliant piece, unfortunately for Labourless, not for us, which I'm still angry about. But um uh in which you kind of made the point, it's like, well, what would this English Labour Party do, right? The reason why there's a Scottish Labour Party is because there is a Scottish Parliament and they stand candidates to ditto Wales. Like, Labour didn't get rid of, like, the Berkshire Labour Party because it hates Berkshire. It's because that county count, that count, that local authority doesn't exist anymore. Uh, people dislike the Labour Party in parts of England, right? Because Labour, for a very long time, has not done very well in places where... W.H. Smith is the only bookshop in places where most people are employed by the private sector, in most kind of small towns with fairly identical-looking high streets. It actually does badly in those places which are like Wales. I think some of, a lot of the people it does badly with identify more as English than British, but I'm not really convinced that... My instinct is the reason why Labour does well with people who identify as British is because people who identify as British, not English, are more likely to be minorities, who are now the most reliable part of Labour's coalition right it's basically metropolitan lefties of various cues and ethnics right that is labor's yeah. that is labor's coalition i feel i feel like the englishness thing feels a little bit like i don't know if labor's like in a spaceship and there's like a cracked window and like the the oxygen is running out um and someone going oh god the problem is is the the window's not stained glass no the problem is there's a massive crack in it like it just happens that it also doesn't have a stained glass window. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a question that we, we probably need to pay more attention to. It's not something I kind of managed to go into, given the space allowed, about how much Englishness in that context is a is a proxy for the for white, mm. actually, and that's a really complicated question. And at, at, and and I think it's probably one that merits quite a sort of long, sober analysis. I mean, I think John Denham said to me that seventy percent of people describe themselves as white English. So you can't say it's as simple as if you say you're English, that's because you're racist or because you're a white supremacist or you know any of those things. But it clearly is. I think there is this interesting dynamic developing where, particularly, you know, actually a lot of white men in particular, and I'm sure, you know, white women as well, see um, sort of affirmative action programs, but see the way that people have talked about more minorities as as needing kind of special help and special recognition. And they kind of feel, my life's not great, where's that force for me? Mm. And I think that's something that, you know, Labour can appeal to that in terms of its old-fashioned socialist collectivist message about the idea about working together and and by class-based kind of um, endeavour. But it's it's a, it's something that people are very queasy about engaging with, which doesn't necessarily mean you shouldn't engage with it, because there is clearly something there. It just means it has to be done quite carefully, I think. Yeah. Um... Well, it's good. We're in total agreement. 
Um, uh, if uh, anybody still doesn't have anything to do, exciting to do on Sunday lunchtime, Stephen and I will be talking um, with all our reaction to uh, the Labour leadership election. We're talking about what you know how how Owen Smith's surprise victory has overwhelmed us um, and our reaction to that at the King's Place podcast festival uh, on Sunday. If you just Google that and our names, you will find it. And there are a couple. Of- Actually, there really aren't very many tickets left, but there are like six or so tickets left. So um, if you are free on Sunday, come and see us. Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And together we host the New Statesman's Pop Culture Podcast, Seriously. If this sounds like something you'd be interested in, you can get this episode and everything else we've done on newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y. now it's time to go down the line, not to the lobby, of course, because it's conference season, but to hear the latest developments from Lib Dem Conference in Brighton with George. Hi, Stephen. Hi, George. So, yes, as you say, the nation came to a stunning halt this week for the Lib Dem Conference, and their leader, Tim Farron, made his closing speech yesterday. And what was politically notable about it was Farron's attempt to reposition himself as a centrist. So when he was elected in July 2015, which as he pointed out makes him now the longest serving leader of a UK-wide party, he pitched himself to the left of Labour. Uh, The Lib Dems, for instance, voted against the Welfare Reform Bill, uh, while Labour, of course, abstained. He opposed uh, intervention in, in Syria at the time, Then, of course, we had the election of Jeremy Corbyn. And so what left-wing space there was uh, to to the left of of Labour previously was was monopolised. And so Farron is now pitching for those centrist voters uh, who don't like Corbyn's direction. And uh, the striking lines in the speech were on Tony Blair. And so Farron said uh, there were obviously things I I didn't like about Tony Blair's government, um, Iraq, uh, 90-day detention, but I liked his early work. He he, he compared him to the, uh, to the Stone Roses, saying I preferred their early stuff, the minimum wage, tax credits, public service investment. And he said Blair was someone who recognised you need to get stuff done in politics. And I don't think Jeremy Corbyn cares about winning. And so that was quite um, striking in that you certainly won't hear such kind words said about Tony Blair from any Labour conference speaker. And I also thought it was interesting that Although Farron praised former Lib Dem leaders, uh, Paddy Ashdown, he praised um, Vince Cable in his speech, um, he praised uh, Charles Kennedy, he had nothing to say about Nick Clegg and nothing, very little to say about the Lib Dem's own past record in government. Uh, so it, it, it's come to something when you think that uh, citing Tony Blair in your speech uh, is, is a better political move than, uh, than citing Nick Clegg. I mean, in an odd way, kind of, the, the gap between Farron and Clegg has always been overstated, partly because Farron has, has briefed it fairly hard over his career. But Clegg is still adored uh, among the Lib Dem uh, rank yes. and file, um, which I think was one of the interesting things at Brighton. You know, kind of he packed out one of the rooms uh, for his, his book signing. Um, Will, and, and in many ways, praising Blair is something Farron has been doing privately for some time, yeah, certainly for a number of years. Will the fact that he ran to the left for the coalition years mean that this latest kind of transformation won't work? Or, you know, is it, is it going to lead to a transformation of the Liberal Democrat brand and appeal? 
Mm. Well, the big struggle that the Lib Dems face is, is simply that of relevancy. They only have eight MPs. Of course, that's the same number as uh, Northern Ireland's DUP. I think what they really need to recover is to rebuild on a local level, and they are enjoying some good council by-election results, and for the Tories to suffer really an absolute calamity in government, um, because the Lib Dems, like Labour, tend to thrive when their main opponents, who are who are the Conservatives, uh, are in trouble. And, and it's in those seats where the Lib Dems are still the natural opposition, where they're still in second place, where they can hope to make advances. Uh, the other flank on which Farron hopes to succeed, of course, is, is Brexit. So he's taken the most Europhile position of any party leader, calling for a referendum on the eventual Brexit deal. And if that comes to be seen, if, if the leave vote comes to be seen as a mistake by a majority of the general public, he hopes the Lib Dems will benefit from that, not least because Jeremy Corbyn uh, has accepted Brexit, some claim, uh, because he desired it and isn't calling for another referendum of any kind. Um, he's already having some problems with that line, though, isn't he? I mean, I was on a panel where Norman Lamb uh, warned against trying to overturn the result. Uh, Vince Cable has warned against it. Another Lib Dem grandee whose name temporarily escapes me has. Um, yeah, so is there trouble ahead for, for, for Tim Farron? Yes, uh, you, you may think the Lib Dems are too small to have a split, but the EU question proved otherwise. And there is a risk that... The Lib Dems were rejected at the last election, partly because uh, they were seen as as elitist establishments out of touch. And and this uh, call to Farron hopes to reverse the outcome of the referendum risks being seen as, as undemocratic by some of them. Of course, it's not. But, but you're right, the politics are potentially tricky for him. Yeah. Um, and of course, he has the problem that he only has to disagree with one of his MPs to have lost an eighth of his parliamentary party. That joke has been done to death, hasn't it? Anyway, we will be back next week. This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hi, I'm Stephanie. And I'm John. And we host Skylines, a city metric podcast where every two weeks we talk about cities, maps and the human world. Whether the Olympics are good for cities, what it's like to be a woman in a city. And we've had guests like Lauren Elkin, Caroline Criado-Perez. And Neil Codlin, key wall player from Suede, because I'm nearly cool now. Tune in on iTunes or on Acast. Check it out. And now welcome to a section called You Ask Us, in which you ask us questions. You can always tweet us at Helen Lewis, at Stephen KB. Stephen now has a Facebook fan page with probably lots of pictures of you on it, I'm guessing. It actually has only a couple of pictures of me and also a picture of the bread that I made on my Delia column. So that's um, just a bonus, really, for, for free there. Um, the question this week is about Bernie Sanders, uh, beloved of the American left. Would he have done better than Hillary Clinton? Um, I think there's a moment, basically everyone in America, all the American liberals, right, are now freaking out because, and actually really interested in Brexit because they're like, what if this is our Brexit? You know, basically everyone goes, uh, we've looked at this, all the experts overwhelmingly think that Trump is really unqualified, says mad things, has no temperamental interest, is, has some really quite intriguing financial arrangements, uh, his donations to charity, the way that he's used his foundation. Uh, and, you know, as an, you know, lots of experts saying that this is a terrible choice. And then people going, so that's my choice because <laughs> I hate experts. Um, do you think that Hillary Clinton is, as a candidate, is ill-equipped to deal with that? And would Bernie Sanders have been better? Yes and no, right? There are many 
problems with Hillary as a as a, a candidate. She has a tendency to make these weird, unforced errors. So, like when she said that the Reagans had started a conversation on 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 um, on gay rights during the primary at the time when it turns out they were passing anti-gay laws. Yeah, and it's one of those things you're just like, but you weren't. If she'd done that on the interview and someone said like she's just died, and you're just like, oh god, what do I need to say? Right, you go. That's a gaffe, but I at least understand it. But that was a planned statement. The, the emails where... Now, I think in terms of the stuff Trump has done and the level of coverage the email scandal has got, that has been slightly disproportionate. But at every point, the campaign... Yeah, and the pneumonia again, at every point, just go, I've got pneumonia. Just just kill the story. I think that's um, the idea. I think the problem is they knew they were working from a starting point that she's... People see her as slightly shifty and dishonest, which is kind of interesting because Politifact fact-checked her and found her, that, you know, in terms of the statements that she says about politics, to be incredibly honest, unusually honest as a candidate. Whereas, well, if you can work out what Donald Trump's policies are from one day to the next, right? You know, where and and he there are several things where he has flat-out lies, such as saying that he was against the Iraq War from the start, or that he wasn't. You know, he he gave up talking about birtherism years ago, and you can you know just, just things that are just provably untrue. Yeah. But the, that is that she knows that's the narrative that she's fighting against. My issue with Bernie is I, I what I don't understand. So I, I on Facebook I remember lots of Bernie and Jeremy Corbyn groups because I want to kind of keep in touch with what people are, are saying, and people are people are now sort of sad with Bernie that he's not more anti-Clinton, which I think is a kind of fascinating trope. He did a, you know, he's done some really great tweets and speeches about how. You know, yes, he had a different vision to Hillary Clinton, but for God's sake, why would you let Trump in if, like, if you're on Bernie's side? I think that, I think he's actually been not loyal to her exactly, but he's certainly been much more pragmatic than even than actually a lot of his supporters want him to be. Oh yeah, he's been a, a very impressive presence on the campaign. The reason why I think Bernie wouldn't have done better is, in some ways, the problem with the candidate field. Um, between the in the primaries, right, is you had one candidate who could not appeal to the young uh, and young graduates, kind of one half, yeah, well, not a half, of, as we saw from the uh, fairly lopsided result, but, yeah, basically 30 to 40% of the Democratic coalition. And Hillary Clinton just could not appeal to that candidate, that, that base. And my instinct is, is that if um, Sanders hadn't run, uh, and uh, Martin O'Malley had been the other candidate, he would actually have done not quite as well, because I don't think he'd have done as well getting small donors, but he would probably have, have got most of that anti-Clinton coalition. But on the other hand, you had a candidate who couldn't appeal to African-Americans or to Hispanics, really, in, in great numbers, uh, but in, apart from, you know, among the young, but not even all millennials, as it were, only mm. kind of the second wave of millennials. My instinct isn't she will still win. If she loses, it will be because of a differential enthusiasm among Democratic-leaning voters and uh, Republican-leaning voters, right? It feels to me unlikely, and the assumption feels fairly problematic that... what? So are we do we think that white liberals don't care enough about stopping Trump to vote for the candidate they don't want, but black Americans would have done that. That doesn't feel likely. It kind of feels to me that either... I mean, my my instinct, yeah, my hostage to fortune, is I tweeted at one point in the primaries, I don't think either of them are that great, but I think both of them would beat Trump, right? 
That I, is... I think the I think the other differential that didn't get discussed enough was the idea that actually all this there's all this dirt to to throw against Clinton and actually well actually do you know what the the Republican Party didn't do a huge amount of oppo on Sanders because they didn't think he was going to win right and this is the same thing I think that some Jeremy Corbyn supporters are going to discover when we get to the next general election campaign that actually you know when the, when they, someone comes out to really try and destroy you they will probably bring up stuff that you kind of you know that you know if somebody hasn't been destroyed yet it doesn't mean they can't be destroyed later if you see what i mean and i think actually there weren't those kind of incredibly heavy attacks on some of the sanders voting record because they just sort of didn't they kept the powder dry for that right i think i think hillary clinton had been a much more scrutinized candidate there was a lot more out there about her that people could feel polarized about well things we we also have absolutely no idea what would have happened to sanders's numbers if it it was the slightly odd thing about the 2016 primary is it was it got very very heated among a lot of activists and some of the campaign teams got very annoyed with each other and there were lots of fairly uncharitable things emailed about Bernie Sanders by members of the DNC. But actually, in terms of the ads they ran against each other... It was not, they, they, it it was was, not insoluble. It was not it, any it more... Was not an, it, was, it was in many ways a less aggressive primary than 2008. 2008. Well, 2008, you did have Hillary sort of slightly implying that, you know, can we trust this guy? He's a bit... Oh, yeah. And then, they, and then that, that, bre- you know, that breach sewed itself up again and she served it as his Secretary of State. So, yeah, I know what you mean. It wasn't, a, it, it wasn't unlike the Republican primary full of thing, people saying unforgivable things about each other um, that mean that they would never be able to serve... Yeah, but, together. but my instinct is, yeah, and I say this, you know, my, my full together, I still don't think that, uh, that, that she will lose. I can see how there's a chance that she'll lose, but it just doesn't feel very likely. We know there is a reservoir of white, not, you know, white, no, no degree. Um, I'm going to forget what the US equivalent of a GCSE qualification, but they don't have post-GCSE qualifications who didn't vote in 2012 and 2008, right? There is a reservoir of of voters that can be tapped into, whereas the Obama coalition of minorities and graduates is basically tapped out. Uh, however, there's no evidence in terms of ballot registration that Trump is motivating those people. He tended to underperform his polling in the primaries uh, because he, he didn't have and still doesn't have a very effective ground organisation. So my instinct is it would have been fine regardless. If it's not fine, he basically feels... N- the Democrats would have swapped one enthusiasm problem for another. Yeah. And I'm not convinced. But yeah, the interesting thing is, of course, whatever happens, a large part of this result will be because people are voting for Obama's third term. The interesting yeah. question is what happens when they can't get Obama's fourth term. Yeah. yeah, because it's it's one thing to be elected on Obama's coattails in 2016. It's fairly hard to do that in 2020. Okay, I hope that answered. I hope that wasn't too rambling, but do send us in more questions if you liked it. We always love talking about the US elections, so um, uh, I'll just let Stephen die quietly in the corner. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by Anna Leskovitz. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.